Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. Good morning. I don't think anyone will complain that it's too cold in here. Well, maybe. I don't know. But thankfully, it is nice and cool in here. This morning, we are going to be starting a new series called Others. Um, Last week, I spoke about moving from a place where we wash our hands and try and alleviate our responsibility to a place where we actually wash the feet and take responsibility, the responsibility of a servant. And dealing with all the tension that is in our country at this time, I wanted to continue pressing into this, but in various ways. You know, we're going to talk about a mural of Jesus in Haiti, playing tag before school, uh, how I was voted the most popular kid in middle school. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Imitating a priest and being a good parent. Okay, you guys up for that? Okay. One of the years that I went to Haiti, where is the picture? There it is. Okay, they're not in order. I saw this mural at one of the schools that I went to. And I I thought it was interesting because Jesus was black. And I thought, well, that's not right. But it's not white that he's, he's not right that he's white, right? And, And I was just captivated by how We want a Jesus that we can relate to. We want a Jesus that looks like us because it gives us a point of identification. The problem is we also then put the bias that we have on this image of Jesus as well. So now our prejudice becomes this Jesus' prejudice. So if we don't like certain things, then our idea of Jesus also doesn't like these things. And what we really need is a Jesus that we can understand, but one that conforms us instead of we conforming him. And I think even in the church, we develop these frameworks that seem normal to us, but to others, it's just unusual. This is how we do things, and we get comfortable with it, and we make our own way of doing it. Have you ever thought about, like, 
we get together and we sing. I, I remember even going to small home, you know, Bible studies, and I was one of the guys with a guitar, and you go to a group and there's 10 people, and all of a sudden you pull out a guitar and you start singing. Where else do you do that? Do you ever go to your friend's house and someone whips out a guitar and everyone starts singing? It's like that is the strangest thing, and some people still have a problem with that, right? It's like, what's everyone doing? They're all singing together. How do you all know these songs? I've never been to anything like that. I've never called up people and said, hey, want to come over to my house? We're going to sing right? We'll watch a movie or something. We'll eat pizza, but we don't come over and sing, but we do in our church. And whenever we come across people who exist outside of our framework, I think we have ways of putting barriers around them and our perspective of them. The framework could be our culture, our ethnicity, social, economic status. Um, It can be a number of things, but when we put this framework there, it challenges us on how we're going to perceive these people and how are we going to respond to them and their differences. And if we see how Jesus deals with others, maybe it can help us to deal with others better in a way that's going to be helpful. And so this morning, I'm going to look at the woman at the well, familiar story. So turn with me to John chapter 4 verses 1 through 26. As we read this story, I just want you to picture in your mind what's happening here. You've probably heard this before, and then we'll look into it a little bit different, deeply, more deeply. Uh, John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For he, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. 
What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Right now, I want to have Kelly come up. She's going to share a reading by a woman named Jeanette Rawlings that I hope will give us a little window into this woman's life. Let's welcome Kelly. The sun, hot and bright, breaks through the window onto his back. His gray hair curls at his shoulder, turning silver in the daylight. I say nothing as he wakes. He lurches forward, grabbing his sandals and his tunic and cursing the hour. I say nothing as he dresses. Shalom, I say as he leaves. I wasn't always this way, and you knew that. You knew that my first marriage was to a husband three times my age. I was a girl of 15, and despite my pleads, my father arranged it. My mother met my protest with stern rebuke. I shouldn't have complained. After all, he was a kind man. And later, I realized that my father had gone to great lengths to ensure that I would be cared for by a good man. But I did not love him. When he died, I was just a girl. And as a custom, my, brother took, my brother-in-law took me in and deemed me as his own. My youth, unfading, my beauty still intact, He desired me, and his wife knew that. I was a curse to his wife. So when he went to go and care for the flocks, she enacted her, she enacted her revenge on me, making me a servant girl, making me the lowest that she could. And that is when I learned the only resource that I had, my youth, my beauty, my body, his desire became my upper hand. But even that wasn't enough. She rained down such wrath on him to the point where even he wished for nothing but peace, and he issued me a certificate of divorce. My father used to say that Yahweh blessed me with the face of an angel, but angels are not considered dogs and half-breeds as my people were. I learned this at a young age. The first time I went and played with the other boys and girls and the names that they would call me, look at the little dog, they would say. Pretty mongrel, they would call us. When I was sent away from my husband's brother's house, I had no other option but to find another husband. But by this time, his wife had spread spread such vile rumors about me that the women, they hated me. They were jealously careful, and the men, no intentions of a marital, legal marriage. They, They were far too eager to have a sexual one. I was able to find another husband, and yet once again I found myself 
scorned. My youth faded, as did my beauty, but my reputation grew far and wide. My last husband was a good man. He was already dying when he took me in, but he was a good man, and despite his meager estate, he had promised it to his, to his three sons, never to a wife. However, his kindness was a respite for my soul. And none of this shocked you. You didn't recoil from my presence. You, you didn't see me as a prize to be bedded. That morning when the man in my room left, I knew that he would not ruin his name by running off with me. He wouldn't risk that. I wasn't worth it. And you, you saw it in my eyes. I bathed my face and my body, and I tied my graying hair back off of my neck. My water jar sitting by the door, a daily reminder that I was without friend, without husband, without good name, and without hope. I went and drew water every day during the hottest parts of the day so I wouldn't have to see anybody. I could no longer bear the other women's stares, their, their whispers, and, and worst of all, their acting as if I didn't exist. But I was alone with the water and the air, the stifling air, and I didn't mind being alone anymore. But you knew I would be there. Why did you go that way? Why did you go through Samaria when you could have gone a different way? You were looking for something, for someone, something your father was seeking. What was it? I could tell that you were a Jew even from a distance, but you were not a very good Jew, and I should know, because Jews don't talk to Samaritans, especially their women. And yet... You spoke to me for all to hear. You asked me for some water, some kind of secret water that meant someone would never thirst again, and I called your bluff. I said, sir, give me some of this water that I may never have to go and draw water in the heat of the day again. I thought you would leave, but you didn't. I thought you were a bit crazy, but your eyes were the clearest and the kindest that I had ever seen. But there was loneliness, too. Homesick, maybe? Did you miss the father you spoke of as I missed mine? The only man of which I was ever safe and undesired. It was a little much, I must admit, when you talked about your father and your dad as if they were the same person, but... I was ready to leave my water jar full, as was my patience for religious riddles. And that's when you said, go, call your husband. I hate those words. Each syllable reverberates in my soul, and you drew the curtain back from my soul so fast that I stumbled in mind and, and body. I tried to change the subject. I, which is the best religion, which is the right religion, mine or the Jews? And you answered, but not as I had imagined. You spoke of spirit and truth, not ethnic identity, not religious debate. And, and I pretended as if I 
knew more than I did because I was just wanting so badly to stay and talk to someone, but desperate at the same time to leave before anybody saw me. And it was too late because your disciples returned. And in their eyes, I could see that all too familiar look, the one that everyone gave me. You knew their thoughts, but you didn't care. And and that's when you told me. Why did you tell me? Why reveal yourself to me out of everybody in Judea and Samaria? Why did you choose me? I am the Messiah, you said, and, and each syllable wrapped in compassion, a faint reminder of my father's love wrapped around each word so that they were safe and familiar. And I believed you. I trusted you because you knew me. Not what I was or, or what I had become, but, and not even what other people said about me. I, wa- I dropped my water jar and I ran faster than I've ever run before. Not away from those that hated me, but to them. To those that scoffed at the sight of me. To those that only wanted me in the dark places. I ran to them. And I told them about you. I told anyone who would listen to me. And I knew they wouldn't believe me. I mean, who would trust a woman like me? You. You trusted me with your very self. With your deepest identity. You trusted me with your father's secret. You trusted that in my deepest soul was my voice, my wholeness, an irreplaceable hope that only you could draw out. You trusted me. Once the whole village came out to see you, I realized that I had left my jar back at the well, this symbol of loneliness and shame, this carrier of a life of burden, this noonday companion. I had left it there because you were right. There was a water that I never knew about, and I tasted it, Lord. And this heart went dry and barren, thirst no more. Thank you, Kelly. When you hear this story the first time, as I read it, probably certain things that jumped out to you. Five husbands living with someone who's not her husband. And we start to come to conclusions, but really, we don't know this woman at all. We we don't know anything about her. We, We have a framework that we put up, and she sits behind all these barriers, a barrier of race, a barrier of geography, a barrier of gender, a barrier of religion, a barrier of her past. And all these barriers live around us as well. And when Jesus relates to the other person, he not only sees through all these barriers to the depths of the soul, but he rushes in past them. He breaks through every one of them because he's after something more. He's after someone genuine. And he's searching for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. 
When we think of the woman of the well, we think of someone kind of maybe with a wild or even uh, just a shameful past. But when Jesus thinks of her, he thinks of her as a worshiper and as someone who was safe to carry his message that he was the Messiah, which he did not say to many people, but he did to her. When I was in fifth grade, I used to get to school. The bus would pick me up by my house and Michael Jackson, because I went to school with Michael Jackson. Just wanted a name drop right there. So, and so it was in Hollywood, and we'd get there early, and so before school started, we would play tag on the playground. And the playground was just all blacktop, right? This is in the middle of Hollywood. There is no grass anywhere. And during the summertime, boy, your shoes would just about melt playing on that stuff. But we'd go there, and we'd start playing tag, and, and it would be kind of this time where you could just mess around and play before you had to go into class. And, and I remember there was this one girl named Elizabeth who I thought was cute. And so I would want her to chase me because, you know, I wanted to impress her with my skills of running and let her know, you know, how amazing I was, all four feet of me, right? So I would go and play and she would try and tag me and I would tag her and it would just be a lot of fun. And I remember just having this image of Elizabeth that she's cute and I kind of like her. And then as we were playing tag, this other boy started playing, and as she went to tag him, he just says, Oh, get away from me. You're dirty and poor. He said that, and, and something happened in that moment. I, I was watching her when he said that, and I just saw the, the light within her start to diminish and flicker out, and all of a sudden I became aware that her clothes were rather frayed. And her shoes were kind of messed up and that her hair wasn't kept. And I saw her because of his words in a way that I had not seen her previously. Before that, I had this total idea of her that was completely different. But after that, my eyes saw things in a different light. And I remember seeing her heartbreak broke my heart. And I don't remember what interaction I had after that. I remember being mad at this guy for being mean. But I don't remember Elizabeth playing anymore. I don't remember her being out there and playing tag. I remember that she kind of stepped down. And you see, those are the things that happen. Our opinions are shaped by our culture. They are shaped by our peers. They are shaped by our parents Maybe even before hearing Kelly share, your opinion about this woman was shaped by things that you had heard. But maybe there was something more there. A little perspective can move us from a place of being judgmental to being actually compassionate. And you see, when we see things the way Jesus sees things, we actually see things clearer. And so how Jesus sees others is how we should see others. It's how we want to lean into these things. And so I want to talk about five barriers that I think Jesus breaks through and consider how he can break through these things to actually reach these people for the Father. And so the first barrier that I want to talk about 
is racial barrier. It's in the news. It's everything that we've been hearing so much today with Charlottesville and around the world, really. The Samaritans were considered defiled people. They were taken by the Assyrians, the Jewish people, and they had children, and so they were no longer considering them a Jewish race, even though they still believe some of the Jewish traditions because they were not full-blooded Jews, they were looked down upon. It would be like a white supremacist, you know, getting married to a Mexican woman and then his friends, how would they think of him? Okay, it's that kind of mentality that's going on here. And we see the tension even when the disciples return. In verse 27, it says, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or what are you doing? Why are you talking with her? Not only was it a woman, it was a Samaritan woman. They come back and he's crossing these barriers that you just don't cross. It was their tradition to to stay away from Samaria. It was their tradition not to talk to them. They were considered dogs. They were not human in their mindset. They were less than themselves. And so he pushes past these barriers. These conversations that she had with Jesus They're human conversations. Like, why are you talking with her? It wasn't like the Sunday school. Jesus, what do you seek? This this was human conversation. I I love the dialogue that takes place between Jesus and this woman. There's, There's a bantering going on. And I almost hear her cynical voice when she's saying, you don't have anything to draw water with. What are you gonna do? And when Jesus would say something like, you know, well, if you would ask me, I would give you living water. I can see her thinking of it as like a bad pickup line, right? I mean, I'm not being sacrilegious, really. I think that it's like, what are you saying? You know, what are you trying to insinuate? And he's kind of having this human interaction with her. And I hear her response, give me this water. Call your bluff so that I won't have to come here anymore. And this racial tension is so strong that it's not until Acts chapter 10, where God pushes Peter with a vision to Cornelius' house and says, go to the Gentiles. Before we start to see this start to break down the tension that is there in this racial divide. But even then, it doesn't fully take because Paul tells us in Galatians that he rebukes Peter to his face because he was still compromising and, and segregating himself with the Jews. And so this is something that is strong and it's something that is there pushing at them. And we all do this. We, we all have prejudices. Oh, it might not be a, a racial one in this way, but we all come with these ideas. And again, we twist reality to a narrative that is usually putting us in the center of it. We, we look at things the way we see things. See, this kid on the playground, he had to have an idea about what poor and what dirty was to be able to mention this. It was something that was a part of his life that overflowed from this life. And that's what we tend to do. How else can you have people come up with these conclusions that they do? And you see, there's no political system that is going to 
eradicate the barriers that exist. There is no social structure that is going to get past the things that we're encountering today. What it's going to take is a close walk to Jesus' example to break past the barriers, to follow him into the uncomfortable areas, the places that push us beyond the barriers that do exist. Having the hard conversations. And as we mentioned last week, washing the feet, being servants instead of holding a superior attitude is the only way it begins to change. But it needs to change. And even in the church, there are so many barriers. I mean, some churches, if you do not baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're going to hell. You got to baptize the right way. You sprinkle, that ain't going to cut it, buddy. You're gone. You see, it's all about our way and how we do things. And the church has just set up a new law that they find that they follow. As if Jesus cares so much about those things. But what we see here in Jesus' words is he's actually looking for worshipers. He's looking for people in spirit and in truth that will worship and honor God. Another barrier is a geographical barrier. She was a Samaritan. She was in a certain location that put a certain mindset in her mind. When I was in the ninth grade, middle school, I was voted in my school in our yearbook the most popular. That's right. Didn't know that, did you? (laughs) Now, it's kind of funny because I remember that year, and it was definitely, I should have been voted the most confused. That's what it should have been. You see... I was at this time experimenting with drugs, so I was hanging out with the stoners, but I still liked sports, so I was hanging out with the jocks. And because I was hanging out with some of the jocks, one of my friends was black, and so I was hanging out with the blacks. But because I was taking kung fu, I was hanging out with the Asian community, and so I was hanging out with all these people. I was just trying to find out who I was, but they thought I was popular. I was just lost. I was just going to all these different places and trying to find my spot. But we have ways of segregating just based on location, right? Are you living in North Upland? Because below Foothill, South Upland. I think it's funny when I do training, I'll go to a home or I'll say to someone, oh, so where do you live? I live, oh, I live in this address. And I start typing the address. I'll say, oh, in Rancho Cucamon. Oh, no, it's Altaloma. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the mail says Rancho Cucamonga, but no, we're Altaloma, right? It's got to be different. And I mean, that's so true today. If you lived in Salt Lake City, think of the differences between there and Compton, right? I mean, geography plays a big place in this tension that we have. We gravitate to our comforts. Jesus had to go to Samaria and he moves us outside of the geographical boundaries How many times he said, oh, I'd never live there. That's a bad area. But what if that's where the harvest is? What if that's where God is telling you to go and speak to the people because they want to worship in spirit and in truth? But it becomes about our status. I know people who want to leave California just because it's so liberal, because it's so crazy, 
And we start making decisions based on geography. But Jesus pushes right past that. He breaks down and he goes, no, I need to go to Samaria. Not Samaria. No one's going to go there. No proper Jew will go there. I need to go there. Why? Because there are worshipers there. And you see, he breaks the barrier down because God does not see those barriers. Maybe that's where we need to go. Maybe that's where the worshipers are waiting. Another boundary is the gender barrier. We've talked about this a few times. Women were not considered the same status. Women had no legal rights as far as the courtroom. Their, their words were not upheld in court. Jesus crosses these barriers. He, he broke them throughout his ministry. He had Mary sitting at his feet, which was something that a man was only supposed to do. When he is come back to life, the resurrection, he shows himself to women who could not give claim to it in court, but that's who he spoke to first. He is constantly breaking these barriers there and elevating women into this place where they are in the same plane as men. When he tells her to go call your husband, it was a cultural way of the rabbis how they would deal with the women. It's like, I can't talk to you. I'll talk to your husband and he'll tell you. That was how they were supposed to deal with things. And so that's what he would do. And, and then Jesus isn't calling her out because of her past. He's not saying, you're right, you're, you're, you don't have a husband because you've had five already. What he's actually doing is raising her up And then he becomes her beloved. He then starts to speak to her. And it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus breaks down this barrier of where, no, before you had to go and be spoken to your husband, he says, you know what? I will be like that husband to instruct you. I will be the one who will show you God's love and tell you that I am the Christ. See, gospel elevates women past what the church has yet to completely embrace. And here's another barrier that Jesus crushes. Think of the world in so many places where women are still less than second-class citizens. Where is the church breaking through the barriers and helping to elevate their position, give them rights, protect them. Because this is where Jesus goes, and he pushes past all these things. Another one is religious barriers. The first thing she asks when told to go get her husband is a religious one, right? Go get your husband. You know, I have no husband. And he goes, that's right, you've had five and you're living with someone now. He's not your husband. Immediately, her response is a religious question. You know, I think you're a prophet. And so the Jews say this and we say this. I think that's so interesting because I can kind of relate to that. Let's just change the subject to something we can talk about without actually affecting me too much. And when we really don't want to talk about our lives being changed, we study fun facts about the Bible, right? I'm going to study the end times. That's it. 
Don't challenge me and how I'm living. Let's talk about the Antichrist. I saw a thing on Netflix you would not believe. September 28th or something's coming up, you know. Oh, let's talk about that. You see, all these things are just ways of distracting me from actually having to change. I'll do apologetics. I'm going to do the cults. You name it. I've done them all, right? And I mean, they're great things, but I know many times I'll study something for a year. When am I going to know enough? And it doesn't affect who I am. Right? I, I'm still acting the same way. I'm still conducting myself with my wife or my kids the same way. But I know all about the Mormons, you know, and I know all about, you name it, Reformed theology. I know all about these things, but I haven't changed. Do you know people who know the Bible but are still jerks? I do. I've been one. I'm not kidding. I have been a jerk. And I use the Bible to affirm my jerkiness. The religious, Jesus pushes through the strong religious culture and barriers. It's not about us versus them. We have this so much in Christianity. There's so much division. You know, are you Reformed? Are you Arminius? Are you progressive? Are you conservative? All these labels. But what does Jesus do? He pushes to the heart of the person and cares for her in a personal way. We have combined God and country. Most religious systems do. And now Christianity is synonymous with America to many people. When you go to other countries, I did this when I was in Wales and talking to some Muslim students, and they thought everyone born in America was Christian. There are some Americans who think this. They just think that that's automatically what we are. And immediately you become unpatriotic if you say America isn't a Christian country. And so many people are panicking because we're losing Christendom as we knew it, right? There's no more prayer in schools. We've got to get prayer back in schools. They're taking the Ten Commandments down. We've got to take these things down. Hang on a second. Prayer in schools did not change people. And so they left prayer. The, the Ten Commandments did not change the heart of people. And so trying to go back to claim things is going to keep us from moving forward to what we need to do. If it wasn't working and changing the lives of people then, do we think it's going to make a difference now? Why did they leave it? If it was so beneficial and so helpful, why were they so quick to get rid of it? You see, the good news is this, that this form of Christendom that we knew of that failed to break down these areas in society and reach the people who needed Christ. Remember, when these things, when there was prayer in school, there was also segregation in school. Just think about that, okay? What's wrong here? Would you rather have prayer in school and segregation or would you rather get rid of segregation and have people loving each other but not have prayer in school, right? Uh, I'm not saying prayer is bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray in school. I'm just trying to say that there's this idea of Christendom, this religious holding onto that maybe just needs to die so that the truth of following Jesus can rise up. 
so that we can get past the religious perceptions, break down those barriers, and actually move into a relational conversation that talks to people about following Jesus instead of acting in a religious way. And this is a great opportunity for that to take place. This is actually what needs to happen so that the gospel can move forward. And it's what Jesus does. There's no empire on earth that Jesus reigns in. There is no country where Jesus is reigning through. His is a kingdom that is breaking in. So the quicker we get rid of the one that is stopping that, the more we can see who are Christ followers. The question isn't what denomination you are. The question is, are you following Jesus? Do you look like him? Are you going where he goes? Because he went into Samaria, spoke to a Samaritan woman who had a past. Which brings us to the last barrier I want to talk about, the past barriers. You know, it's our own stories that should give us humility to recognize that we have no claim to the gospel as our own. Jesus said, why do you take the speck of dust out of your brother's eye when you don't recognize the log in your own? You see, we are all in need of the same mercy. We are all in need of God's grace. And so there is no place where we can step up and say, I am better than because I have lived this way. Jesus is pushing past these things. You know, being a good parent is probably one of the most difficult things in the world. Do you remember how you behaved when you were a kid? I think about the things I did and what I would have done to me if I was my parent. It's like I forgot who I was. All of a sudden I became a parent and I knew everything that my kid was supposed to do and forgot that they were kids. Christ pushes past the barrier of our shame and gives us his life to take the pain. That's what a good parent does. A good parent pushes past problem and steps into the pain to walk beside the child because we all have a past that needs forgiveness we all have a past that kind of wants to put shame on us and a good parent like christ doesn't let the circumstance stop them from breaking the barrier to reach their child and it's the most painstaking, slow process I know of. It takes your entire life to be a parent. And it takes all that you have to give and to give and to love and to care. And the minute you forget what it's like that you needed that too, you stop the communication and you stop getting through. To break through the barrier, you have to bear the pain. 
And sometimes we have to step into the pain of people's past to help them get through it, to help them make the right decisions. And you see, the, the great thing about all of this is that Jesus breaks through every barrier we put up to find the heart of the people who the Father is seeking, those who will worship him in spirit and truth. You see, Genesis, I want us to be people who are willing to change. Not just because we want to change, not just because we want to be progressive or something new, but if we're not being changed, then we're probably not following Jesus. If something isn't changing in in these areas of your life, then I'm questioning how close you're following Jesus because he's going to change us if we are going to be like him right? I'm not like him enough. I need to be more like him. So how is it changing me? And if I'm comfortable and I think I've got it, I know the Bible, I'm doing all these things right, and I'm not being changed, I'm probably not really following him. I'm not going to Samaria. I don't want to go there. I'm not speaking to that woman. I am not having the right perspective. I'm not breaking down the barriers. I'm still holding some up. Whether they're racial, geographical, whether they're gender, religious, holding their past against them. My desire is not to be trapped behind any of these barriers as a community, that we'd be willing to go to the other side of the tracks, that we'd be able to speak to everybody that we would be able to be open and have a humble attitude christ would give us the courage to follow him past all of these barriers so that we can be part of his kingdom this is how jesus deals with others and this is how we need to deal with others as well Let's pray. Father, the most difficult thing for me to see is my own shortcomings so many times. I am intentionally blind. I am intentionally deaf and numb to the things that need to change in my own life. And it is your spirit who illuminates these areas as I look at Jesus. And so, Lord, in all these things that we talked about this morning or that I talked about, I I pray that if some of them stood out to us and we feel like, man, that's really speaking to me, that is an area where I am allowing a wall to keep me between the people who need to hear from you, that we would acknowledge it, that we would... Confess it, Lord, it was a, a pro- process to get the disciples to actually change. And it's likely going to be a process for us to change. But Lord, may we not stop. May we never quit. May we not try to hold on to the past and miss what you are doing today and wanting to do tomorrow. God, may our eyes be open. May we see like you see. May our perspective be changed about the people around us, about the countries around us, about 
the various people in various faiths, in various situations. Lord, help us to hear what you hear in their souls. Help us to see what you see. Even as you are reaching so many in the Muslim community without anyone speaking to them. Lord, if we would just have your voice be as tender as your whispers are to them without a voice. What could we do? Lord, I pray that Genesis would be a community that changes how people see church, how people see you. Strengthen us by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. In the 80s, the door opened up for the West to be able to go back into China after Chairman Mao had ridded the country of Western influence, of the Christian religion and churches. And when People went back into China wondering what they were going to find because of the vacuum that was there from all the missionaries and people left. What they found was six million Christians. How did that happen? There was no one there to evangelize them. There was no one there to teach them the proper doctrine. How did the church grow to this enormous number without any influence. It's almost like if we don't get involved, God's able to do more. It makes me wonder how many times we're actually the ones stifling the work because we're putting up walls that Jesus came to break down. May you not build a wall where Christ has broken it. May the barriers be taken away as you have the heart of Christ to take the love of God to everyone, every place. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of the week. Enjoy Labor Day. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.